0: Uh, know your numbers. I mean, know, know know your industry, know your market, know your numbers, and network with people who have done it. Mm. Get around as many people as you can that have done it, and you'll be amazed because I was amazed. If you can just go out and and ask people, said, "Hey, I'm getting into this. You you got time to talk about it?" Most people are going to pay it forward, and you can learn a ton. So so you know, I use LinkedIn as a tool for sure. Ton. I mean, I think that's how we got hooked up.
1: Yep. Think, oh, right.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great tool. I mean, I mean, and and don't kid yourself about your margins. Like, don't be like, well, I could do this. Maybe this. It doesn't matter if it's here. No, man. Make sure it's where you need it to be in order to be profitable.
1: Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. We're always here to help. Now today we've got another great guest on the podcast, Gary uh, Plasmeier. And uh, Gary, uh, after uh, high school, uh, jumped into the working world right out of the shoots didn't uh, or didn't have an opportunity to go to college, um, but uh, started working at the Texas Roadhouse. Uh, worked uh, traveling around, helping opening or opening up other businesses or new restaurants for them. Uh, got tired of the travel, helped uh, open up a, a local restaurant in Milwaukee. Um, sold that and created a fast uh, fast pizza concept, opened a restaurant there, I uh, did a couple of spinoffs from that, also developed some uh, food products uh, to keep uh, fringe fries and I think pizza fresher for delivery, uh, sold off the tech and the restaurants and is now focused on uh, a few pastry and uh, food products and uh, that are going into different stores and groceries. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, Gary. Uh, pleasure to be here, Devin. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Excited to have you on. So, so I just took a much longer journey and condensed it in the uh, the 30-second mm-hmm. version of it. So why don't we uh, rewind and unpack that a bit and tell us a little bit about uh, diving into the Texas Roadhouse world after uh, graduating high school.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I was, uh, I was just looking. I knew I wasn't ready for college. Let's put it that way. And I jumped in and uh, somebody, they were opening... This was in Illinois at the time. I was born in Missouri, St. Louis, lived in Illinois, went to high school in Illinois. And then, you know, outside of that, um, started working for Texas Roadhouse. They were opening a restaurant in the city I lived in, in Illinois. And uh, it was like, okay, you know what, let's, let's give it a shot and see what happens. And it, it progressed very quickly from there. I, I got hired on as a server. Next thing you know, I was um, service manager, and then they put me in the kitchen as an employee, and then a kitchen manager, and then a general manager, and then we, I was traveling around countries, countries like I, like I went to multiple countries. I was traveling around the country, the United States, uh, within all within about a three year period, all of that went down.
1: Hmm. So now, so you were going or basically with Texas Roadhouse, working to go and open up restaurants, help them to expand their business. Mm -hmm. Now you did that for three years. Now, as you got towards the end of the three years, I think if we, when I chatted, we chatted a bit before you kind of got tired of the travel and was looking for something a bit different. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So I was looking for some stability. So I worked for the Texas Roadhouse for 10 years. It took me about three years to start getting into the corporate side of the business And I I did that for about three or four years. Uh, And then I met my wife at the Texas Roadhouse, by the way. So we got married. And then uh, once we started having kids, just the insane amount of travel was too much. So I asked them for a location, just a one-off location that I could run. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that wound up being here in the Milwaukee market, a city called New Berlin. And then I did that for three years. And that's when, after doing that for three years, I decided like there's there's more to life than just working eighty hours for somebody else. So uh, I quit. I didn't tell my wife. I just one day at one end, I was like, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore, and I quit. Came home, told my wife, don't advise anybody ever doing that. Coming home and telling your wife to quit your job <laughs> without talking to her. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I, I'm probably with you. I, I mean, my wife would be
1: supportive probably, but wouldn't be happy that if I just came home and said. I decided to quit yeah. what's
0: he'd be like what's the plan what are you gonna do next i don't know It'll, it'll that's exactly we'll it out. what i said too i was like <laughs> i don't know something um and then that's when i got the opportunity to take over the local a local deli as a partner like an actual partner hmm. uh, called jake's deli it's been in the milwaukee market since the 1920s so i jumped on on that in uh, late 2009 early 2010
1: all right. So and in, because in, uh, Texas Roadhouse now, did you start in Milwaukee or what kind of took you to <clears throat> Milwaukee or how did you transition from traveling, going all over the U.S. to Milwaukee in and in a local restaurant?
0: So the first restaurant I started in was in Illinois. And then they were, they were growing so fast. When I started there, there was 50 restaurants. When I left, we had over 400. So it was growing just exponentially. And they were looking for more of a regional team. So Illinois, Indiana, uh, and Wisconsin-based, so started going north, Joliet, Rockford, wound up all the way up to Green Bay, Appleton, and then came back down, and when I finally said I don't want to keep traveling, there was a store in uh, New Berlin that was just opening, which is uh, you know 10 miles south of downtown Milwaukee, okay. so we stayed, and we've been here ever since. We've been in so over. Three, I think we went to Green Bay hmm. uh, and started that process. And uh, we've been living in Wisconsin ever since.
1: No, well, sounds like a good, uh, good uh, place to be. And uh, it worked out well for you. So now moved to Wisconsin, started or opened up a local restaurant. Now, is it your own restaurant? You started from scratch or you went and worked for someone else and helped them open it? Or was it already existing? Or walk us through a little bit. Uh, what was that uh, local restaurant that you did?
0: Yeah. So after, after, um... After the Texas Roadhouse, we bought in on a, it was called Jake's Delicatessen. And it was a deli that started in the 1920s, believe it or not. Hmm. And uh, I bought in on it in 2009, late 2000, or early 2010, like I said. And uh, we, my aspirations, because I don't think small ever, uh, was to turn this into a franchisable opportunity so we did that, we, we we had four locations and we were running around all over the place. We grew up like 400% in about six years. And then the majority owner of the business was a, was a much older gentleman who just didn't have the appetite to see it go any farther than that. Hmm. So that's when we decided, and I say we, it's cause I brought a couple other people along with me. We decided to uh, sell our shares in that and then go open a fast casual pizza restaurant so so now how did you decide on fast casual
1: pizza in other words you know because it's kind of conflicting right typically pizza is and i'm not saying it's a bad idea i'm all no 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 absolutely but you know pizza typically either have one of two models right you have the go sit down, have the pizza or you have like the Little Caesars and they just have a, delivery. you know, they bake so many ahead of time and they just on demand. So mm-hmm. kind of how did you decide kind of to go in the middle there or how did you, or get that started?
0: Uh, that was one of the, one of our other partners, uh, his wife went to Texas and saw a concept called Pie Five Pizza. And this is one of the mods and the, um, uh, there's a couple of uh, Blaze, I think it was called, Blaze. I don't know if you're familiar with any of those concepts. They were starting to gain traction uh, and we thought we would jump on the front end of that bad hmm. so to speak and see what we could do with it and that's what we did it's called nine slice pizza and we had these brick conveyor ovens you know we were able to cook pizzas in two and a half minutes and uh so that's what we did we did it in a suburb of Milwaukee and it was going it was going well uh and we that's how the baked goods came out of it though. I mean, we, we've realized we had a better opportunity scaling and commercializing baked goods because of opening the restaurant than we did having multiple units of the fast casual concept. We wanted 50 units, we designed it around 50 units and we didn't get past one because we realized very quickly we had a better opportunity, which in hindsight, because of one of the first days so we closed the restaurant about two weeks before the governor shut everything down for covid Mm. so i mean you know restaurants took uh, took a pretty good beating
1: so no, it makes sense and so you know and you know that one is hard i think that that was one of the ones that got hit pretty hard with covid shutdowns you know especially if you're set up to be be uh a dine-in or in other words not just a pick up and and, and take off but a dine-in or anything in anything other than just a pure uh pickup uh, type of a service gets mm-hmm. hit hard so now you guys are kind of getting hit hard with that with covid you know fast casual worked out well for a while but you figured out maybe that wasn't the concept but i think you also got into uh developing some delivery products with keeping french fries and pizza fresher longer or for delivery is that right
0: yeah. So, you know, it being, I have a little OCD in me. So everything that every time food goes out, we want it to be right, you know, and that's what any op- restaurant operator should feel like. I, I, I would hope. And it was a thin crust style pizza and we were doing delivery when thin crust pizza is delivered. Everybody knows it's just a different texture when you get it. Just the nature of the product. As much mm. as you want to try to keep it crispy, it's very hard to do. So I was getting frustrated. And I was doing some of the deliveries on my own because I wanted to get the consumer feedback. What are they seeing? Why are they seeing? How are they seeing? What can we do to improve? So I, I took it upon myself. And I was somewhat of a mad scientist in the back of the restaurant, uh, just plugging. In. I had little, little styrofoam boxes and I had thermometers and I had dehumidifiers. And I mean, people were looking at me like, what is he doing? I knew what I was doing. I think I knew what I was doing. Uh, my employees definitely like. Okay, well, we're just going to let him do his thing. And what I what started happening was is I was figuring out how to pull moisture out of a delivery container. And when I say delivery container, it's not what the actual pizza goes in the pizza box. It's what you put the pizza boxes into, so pizza bag or mm-hmm. or whatever Grubhub has. Right? How to pull moisture out of that? container while keeping pizza hot. Hmm. so then I got all excited I was like man this is this could change the way food is delivered uh, and went and found a couple people who had some skill sets and we worked through it wound up with a couple patents. Uh, it's called Therminator, wound up with a couple patents uh, and it, I mean we, we figured out we figured out how to keep pizzas crispy and fries crispy uh, during delivery and we got the attention of some very big companies very quickly Mm. and um you know we um i had a decision to make you know we haven't talked about the bakery yet i had a decision to make because i'm not elon musk and i can't run two companies at one time (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why you would want to i'll be honest after going through everything right so it's like look we either focus on this technology or we focus on on the bakery products. And the bakery products were more about, you know, legacy and, and family and just, there was more meaning to it.
1: Hmm. And
0: this technology was just like, well, I mean, it was more uh, money driven and there just wasn't a lot of real meaning in it. I mean, I'm a guy who, who, you know, focuses on businesses to go and be a billionaire. You know, the money's great. Don't get me wrong. I like to have nice things. Everybody likes to have nice things. At the end of the day, that's not my motivator. My motivator is to do something that changes people's perspective, either on um, what they're doing or how they're doing it. And, uh, you know, a big company came along and they said, hey, this is a good idea. We're willing to give you X for this with with a little bit of royalty. So we said, "Okay, Hmm. go ahead.
1: So now the big company comes along says, Hey, we'll give you some royalty. You get an opportunity to kind of make an exit, but also you mentioned just briefly, but you were getting, or either, I don't know if you're getting into bakery or that was kind of the next thing on the roadmap that you wanted to do, or kind of walk us through as you're making the exit from kind of building some cool technology and getting interest from the bigger players to kind of, where did you go from
0: there? Yeah. So we actually started them both in parallel. They both started at the same time so the bakery mama bevs and the terminator started at the same time Hmm. i went to an entrepreneurial symposium here in um, madison uh which is you know an hour west of milwaukee and i was pitching technology wound up with a cake lead (laughs) it was crazy Hmm. our bakery lead so Uh, we're like, well, we've got opportunities here. we got two very unique products at the same time. Let's get them both going and then see what what happens so we can figure out which one we need to go at or which one we want to go at. So Mm -hmm. the bakery was going at the same time the tech was going. Once the tech got out of the way, we were able to focus more on on the commercializing of the bakery item. And items, it's turned into items now. Uh, And it's all centered around butter cake Uh, The bakery is, at least, called Mama Babs. We named it. So it's a a 100-year-old recipe out of St. Louis. Ooey-gooey butter cake or what what people refer to it as. We branded it St. Louis-style butter cake. Gives it a little bit of regionality. Uh, Consumers just relate to that a little bit better.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: um, um, I totally lost my train of thought, man. (laughs) <laughs> no, you're good. So you got into the bakery you said,
1: "Okay, we got the, you know, we got the secret sauce, the old recipe. We're going to yeah. brand it a bit better. Made the exit from the previous company." So kind of what or what period of time or when did you get into the bakery or start uh, doing that kind of as a a full-time uh, endeavor?
0: Into 2020, it was more when it started becoming more of a full-time endeavor. So, uh, we flipped our restaurant into a small production facility tried to figure that out. We realized very, very quickly that we're not manufacturers. It's one thing to run a restaurant, it's a completely different thing to to manufacture food for for the general public. Hmm. So we pivoted away from that. And then we're just focused on the business development, the sales and the marketing of the butter cake product. We partnered with a company out of New York who does the production for us. And that opened up a bigger portfolio. They do crumb cakes and cinnamon rolls and and uh, pound cakes and cornbreads and cookies. So we packaged them all together and that gives us a nice portfolio to go out into the market and sell. Uh, and with the butter cakes being so unique, everybody, we always get a second conversation with a buyer, which is cool. I mean, You don't see that very often, especially in the baking industry. I don't know if you ever go into a grocery store bakery and you're like, man, how many ways can they make a cupcake? How many ways can they make a donut? <laughs> How many ways can, how much more stuff can they put in a loaf of bread? Hmm. Uh, 99% of people have no idea what bar cake is. So that's why we got a lot of traction with it very quickly.
1: So now you do this end of 2000 or sorry, not 2000, 2020, mm-hmm. um, get into the bakery industry. So that's been, you know, a couple of years at least. So kind of catch us up, you know, how's it gone since then? Is it taken off like a rocket ship and money's raiding from the skies and you're getting ready to retire? Is it been mm-hmm. still bumpy as you're figuring the market out and kind of or ex- explaining what the product is and finding the position somewhere in between or kind of walk us through a little bit as to how it's progressed over the last two years to where it's at today?
0: Yeah, since Buttercake, was was, it's such a unique unique product and very, very few consumers know what Buttercake is. Uh, we shot out like a rocket and then it flatlined and it dipped a little bit. Uh, we made a dip because we were opening doors and then the consumer wasn't relating to what Buttercake is and why they need to be eating it. So mm. to your point, we had to figure out what the market was. And we realized that it's an emerging market. There are companies that are are dabbling with attempting to grow butter cake, uh, as part of their portfolio. So we did a bunch of focus groups. We took all the consumer, consumer feedback, all the, all the customer feedback, and we lumped it, uh, into what we're currently doing now. And all that just happened. I mean, you know, we're about three months out of, okay, we know what we have to do, how we have to do it, where we got to go and, and how we need to get to the consumer. So, um, we're going to. We have channels with grocery in private label.
1: Mm.
0: Grocers, just a quick FYI here. They all want to get to fifty percent private label total sales in their stores by twenty twenty
1: five.
0: So we got a nice opportunity with there. Gives us a gives us a nice uh, revenue uh, foundational revenue to build off of, and then we're going to push the Mama Bev's brand to the. Uh, experiential high-end gift giving e-commerce space. So you can get a lot more, you get more bang for your buck on our end, at least it's margin-wise, doing that. Because the food and beverage CBG space is tough. If you go into a grocery as a brand and you want to be your own brand, I mean they get you for these marketing expenses and distribution expenses. And I mean, you name it. By the time you start with a 60% gross margin. If you're doing a good job, you have 5% left over at the end of the day. Whereas you go in with a with a private label, then all of those extra fees go away and they just want to put their label on it and sell it. So you wind up tripling your margins. And then on e-commerce, people are way more willing to spend 20 bucks on a cake, whereas in grocery, they're looking at you like you're crazy if you try and get eight bucks out of them interesting so very interesting journey man going from a restaurant tour to trying to figure out that the food and beverage consumer fact goods good space it's like Sounds it's, like it's a, been a, a, tough a
1: much different world yeah so now yes. one question i had because you know so do, or where do you guys you know maybe kind of because you hit on it you know you can go or private label and it makes it mm-hmm. so you can get better margins you can also go e-commerce and uh, you know people are willing to pay a bit more or you know it's probably to do with they're not looking at 20 different things saying this was eight dollars this one's twenty dollars what's the difference and so you can kind of uh, build a bit more mm-hmm. of a, a following and and get uh, more of a, a connection with them so where do you guys kind of see things head in the next six to 12 months as, as you continue to grow
0: well, um, since we partnered with the company out in New York, Sprock Creek Bakery, uh, we're, we're going to figure out how to merge/slash combine the two uh, companies. It's going to make it make it make it north of a ten million dollar entity, hmm. and then we see the e-commerce getting to you know anywhere between two to three million dollars over the next four years. Uh, we're already engaging with private label with the butter cake. And then the Sprout Creek Bakery SKU. So, I mean, our ultimate goal is to get acquired.
1: Mm.
0: Be done, get acquired. I mean, you know, I, uh, four to six years we're looking at with this timetable that we have now. Uh, Sprout Creek's only about three years old as well. And we got introduced to them. We're trying to do the same exact things, just on different ends of the the country. Interesting. Uh, And, they have manufacturing skill set, and we have sales and marketing skill set. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. And all we want to go out and do is be successful. I mean, we've both been through some painful exits. We've both been through some not so painful exits. It's just about getting to that the final exit, I guess you want to call it. Uh, so we can go out and just start enjoying li- our lives a little more instead of always <laughs> running at the next mountain to conquer.
1: Then you, then you can retire to that uh, isle, or private island. Now, I always say private island. Typically, if I when I retire, I want to go uh, in the mountains and live in a cabin. So whichever oh, way yeah. you want to go, it's very, nice. very...
0: I think <laughs> I'm more of a private island kind of guy.
1: Fair enough. I, I, I don't think either of them are bad options. So I'll take either if if, if they're offered to me, But right, uh, right, absolutely. No, it sounds like a, a great direction that uh, you guys are headed and a, a lot of opportunity uh, yet in front of you. So... Well, now as we've kind of uh, reached towards uh, the present day of the journey, it's always a great time to transition to the two questions always asked at the end of each episode. So we're going to jump to those now. Yeah. So the first question I'd like to ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what'd you learn from it?
0: Worst business decision I ever made was getting involved with family. Hmm. And I learned that nobody is immune to the emotions that come out of a business when you relate family to it. You might think it's good, you might think it's great. It just, it, you know, it just, it doesn't work. And it was working for a long time and then it stopped working. And uh, if I could go back and do that over, I definitely would. As far as more of a business aspect of things, it's making sure that uh, you have enough margin built into whatever Whatever uh, vertical or whatever category or industry you're trying to get into, man, know your numbers inside and out and be about 80% of the way there. You don't need to be 100% of the way there because you're going to learn along the way. If you wait till you're 100% of the way there, you'll never launch No, and I, and even if you even I
1: don't even know how you get 100 because I've, I've done businesses for a while. And I, I still don't know that I feel like I'm 100% there, even for oh. businesses that are well established. So but I think yeah. that if you can get a good portion of the way there, you can get it reasonably solidified and have that plan and have that all in place, then mm-hmm. it's a good time to, to jump in. So I think that's, you know, and I, I reflect back to working with family. And, you know, I think that there's a, a trade off there, right. So in the one sense, working with family, you know, who you're working with, you have a relationship of trust, or at least you do in in the beginning. And you know, yeah, and you and you can know there you had a relationship for a long time, you know, their strengths, you know, their weaknesses, Mm -hmm. but by the, the same token, it's different when you know, you are going home after work, and you see the same people, or you see them on the weekends, or you see them at family events, and it just changes that dynamic. So I think that there's kind of that trade off. And sometimes it works out well. And a lot of times you learn the hard way that it's better just to say family and and keep family and business separate. So I think that definitely makes sense.
0: Yeah. And even if you do, you know, if you're getting into the fundraising spot, even if you do a friends and family round, Mm. you know, just be careful, especially if you get a, like, you know, a well-off uncle who wants to dump a bunch of money and they may think like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's all good. You know, I've seen it more often than not come back where these people just, you know, lose their minds when it goes south. And, you know, most businesses don't wind up making it. So
1: that's true. You know. Yep. I'm I'm right there with you. So it's a, a good, easy mistake to make, but a, a great uh, one to learn from. Yeah, second absolutely. question. Second question now that I like to ask is, so now if you're talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what mm-hmm. would it be the one piece of advice you give them?
0: Uh, know your numbers. I mean, no, know, know your industry, know your market, know your numbers and network with people who have done it.
1: Mm.
0: Get around as many people as you can that have done it, and you'll be amazed because I was amazed. If you can just go out and and ask people, said, "Hey, I'm getting into this. You you got time to talk about it?" Most people are going to pay it forward, and you can learn a ton. So so you know, I use LinkedIn as a tool for sure. Ton, I mean, I think that's how we got hooked up. Yep. Think, oh, right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great tool. I mean, I mean, and and don't kid yourself about your margins. Like, don't be like, well, I can do this, maybe this, it doesn't matter if it's here. No, man, make sure it's where you need it to be in order to be profitable at the end of the day. And if it's not, then you gotta figure out how to get it there, not, well, I'm gonna lower it. How do I get it there? What do I gotta tweak change before I can actually launch and, and really make some money with this thing? Cause it's all, I mean, business, you need energy, you need excitement. It's all about the numbers at the end of the day though.
1: No, I'm right there with it. And, you know, I think it's one where, you know, the other one that I always hear that kind of goes along with that is, well, we'll make it up in bulk. Yeah, we have terrible oh. margins. We only ha- we only make 3%, but when we hit that <laughs> $50 million mark, we'll be great. Right. I think that, you know, setting it up that the only way you're ever going to be profitable is if you're a ginormous, huge business that does so much money that you, you know, that it's unfathomable probably isn't the best plan to start out with and it is i get where you get there but i think that to your point knowing your numbers knowing where you need to be and how you're going to get there sets you up for a lot or a higher likelihood of success so i think that's a great takeaway
0: yeah and especially if you're going to be in the fundraising world too right now if it's something you want to do for your business you know it's you know totally up to you obviously at the same time the more buttoned up you are on the financial end of this and showing profitability sooner rather than later It's going to help it's the one of the hardest times to raise funds ever so all Mm -hmm. they want to see is how they're going to make money and if you're making money right away
1: yep no i think that's a great takeaway great piece of advice so Mm -hmm. well now as we do wrap up if people want to reach out to you they want to be a customer they want to be a client they want to be an employee they want to be an investor they want to be your next best friend any or all of the above what's the best way to reach out to you contact you find out more
0: yeah, go to LinkedIn. I mean, I spend a ton of time on LinkedIn. So, you know, look up Gary Plasmar. There's probably not a lot of Gary Plasmire on LinkedIn. And awesome. um, I mean, our, everything else is changing. So, go to LinkedIn, find me there. You know, the website, all that stuff's changing. Um, it's the best place to find me.
1: Awesome. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out, support a great, uh, great business. If nothing else, uh, make a new best friend. So, with that, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you, the listeners that are out there, if you have your own journey to share and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you. So just go to inventiveguest.com, apply to be on the show. A couple more things as listeners, make sure to click share, subscribe, leave us a review, it helps us to reach even more startups and small businesses to help them along their journey to success. And on that note, if you ever need help with your or uh, help along your journey with patents, trademarks or anything else with a startup or a small business, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. We're always here to help. Thank you again Gary for coming on the podcast and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last.
0: Appreciate it Devin, enjoy your weekend and yes, I will it's going to be awesome.